Rather fire shots and time until your monkey has gotten in. That's a simply dumb done it. Whoops, sorry, you caught me. I had to be singing No Tears because I've been watching Office Space over and over and over. It's The Way It Is, episode 19, official Bobby Galinsky podcast. Who would open a podcast singing No Tears? 31st of July, 2020. Last day of July, last day of my birthday month. And then, sadly, we're into August. All the Leos are. But that's all right, because August... August is a good month. We don't mind. Um, we don't mind August. And if you've been uh, feeling like you've been stuck in some infernal loop, it's because you are. Not that you're stuck, but the combination of the following factors feels that way. And that's Mercury retrograde. Mercury in one sign since late May. Venus in one sign since late April. And the grind of Saturn at the end degrees of Capricorn. That's all from Mystic Medusa, letting you know that it's wacky, but it's just about to open up and get wild. So I hope it will. I'm excited. I'm excited for August. I'm actually excited for August because August, when I grew up, was the, the peak of summer in the U.S. It meant really just a, a few delicious weeks left before school resumed. I used to love not having school in the summer, kind of wake up. I had a room that was kind of a, a bit of a dormer. It was a, a room with a little corner window over the garage on Valley Drive in Sioux City, one of the lovely leafy streets that had oak trees and maple trees and elm trees before Dutch elm disease came in and wiped them out. The Dutch, really, what have the Dutch done for us? You know, funnel cakes, windmills, bit of slavery, and Dutch elm disease. Funnel cakes are good, though, if you've ever been to Solvang, California. But whole nother story. Anyway, I used to love sleeping in, waking up. And I'd usually wake up because I'd hear the lawnmower just kind of buzzing up the street. Because in, in Sioux City, everybody's always mowing their lawn. Even when it doesn't need mowing, they just mow. It's a very tidy, proud, proud street. I hate it when our neighbors don't don't do their lawns or tidy up the nature strip or things like that. Nature strip being an Australian term for the little patch of grass between the sidewalk and the street. Uh, another thing about nature strip is that's the area where people will often put their you know trash and odds and ends and uh, hard rubbish pickups, things like that. But nevertheless, I used to love waking up, hearing the lawnmower. And the window would be open, and that's how you'd hear the lawnmower. And then the smell of the cut grass would just kind of waft in. So you'd kind of smell it, and you'd hear the lawnmower. And you just kind of loll in bed going, oh, I don't have any school. Don't have anything to do. And then you'd hear some of your familiar friends, their voices outside playing, hitting a ball, or, you know, just kicking a ball around, bicycling, screaming, you know, falling off the bike, smashing their face on the pavement, whatever the case might be, and they think, oh, those are my friends. Got to get up and go outside and play. How simple that was. Because you could go outside, and you didn't have to wear a mask, and you could actually play with other people. Boy, 
I take that for granted. But we've got a very, very big show today. All kinds of goodies. What's going to happen today? Well, we're going to welcome all of our new listeners. We have new listeners in Bolivia, South Africa, Peru, Quebec, which is, I could say, part of Canada, but people in Quebec do not like to feel that they're part of Canada. Welcome, my Quebec friends. And a big cluster in Italy and Hong Kong, kind of like a COVID cluster, a Wu flu cluster. But these are listeners. It's expanding. Maybe I should list them every day and see if there's any fatalities or anything like that. Don't want to lose any listeners. We're going to talk about Hong Kong. Speaking of that, later in the show, we're also going to revisit uh, one of my favorite movies, which I've just rewatched twice in the last month, Joy. Yes, that's the name of the movie. If you didn't see Joy, you've missed one of the best films of the last 10 years. We're going to talk about a wonderful story about the collision between art and fashion. We're going to talk about free speech versus the suppression and fear of free speech. We're going to talk about how monkeys are taking over the world in certain parts of Asia. And an amazing story about George Mallory, who may have been the first person to ascend Mount Everest. Yes, before Sir Edmund Hillary. And we're going to touch on President Trump in the U.S. calling in the feds and why it's important. You always get facts and science on this show. Facts and science. Now, science changes from time to time, but you get the facts and the science the way it is. The way it is. What a catchy name for a show. And then you can do with it what you will. I'm going to try not to be so so preachy. As you know, I've been told I can be preachy. But you will get it unfiltered here. And there is so much fake news and non-news out there. Um, it's driving me crazy, and I'm compelled to give the right information. We're going to talk about uh, how Australia has gone virus crazy again. The UK's half-price meal plan to invigorate restaurants as they reopen. And uh, just all the usual things that you have come to love from the show. Now, what's the weather? 16 degrees. We had a whole week of 12 degrees. Now we've got a whole week of six of 16 degrees, which is about 60 degrees Fahrenheit for those of you in the uh, area of the world that uses Fahrenheit. So it's been pretty pleasant here, a bit chilly at night, lovely during the day, and partially sunny. It's just been great. We haven't any, had any rain in a while, and uh, we had our gutters cleaned out now, so I'm actually ready for some rain. Finally get the gutters clean, it won't rain. Wash the car. It does rain. Hmm. Is there a connection? Is there an inverse, synchronistic, parallel, black hole universe wormhole coming out the other side that knows what we're doing? Hard to say. And uh, talk a little bit about, you've been hearing about a lot on LBC in the UK. Love to listen to that radio station. I'm happy to shout out radio stations and things that I love to listen to. Some people say, oh, got a podcast. Don't shout out a radio station. That's competition. It's not competition. You can't listen to me all day long, all night long. There's 19 episodes now. They're each about, you know, under an hour. 
So even if you binged me solid, which would be awesome, I might just do that. I might just listen to all of mine from Go, Go the Woe because I can listen to myself <laughs> indefinitely. That'd still only be less than 19 hours. But it's been a lot of talk on LBC about restaurants and, and, and weight and things like that. And uh, people getting larger during COVID. Who grew during the Wu flu? I have managed to maintain my weight. My, wi my wife and I work very hard at uh, staying in shape. When the first lockdown happened here, I think it was late February, March, um, we'd always go to the gym or, you know, play a bit of tennis or I, I'd swim, she would dance, you know, pretty active, very active. Uh, and yes, we're both 67. Sounds like old people being active. We don't think of ourselves as old, but we're active. Anyway, anyway, we, uh, we went to the good folks at Rebel Sports and we bought a boxing pole and a bunch of weights and football and those bands and things like that. And we actually came out of the first lockdown actually a tad lighter than we were. We thought we'd put on a pound or two, maybe a kilo. We're trying to maintain that. Uh, it wasn't that many years ago I weighed... 231 pounds and that's 104.9 kilos to be exact and I started cutting calories and just working out steadily and so now the past several years I've maintained it at about 185 pounds about uh, 45 to 50 pounds lighter which is 83.9 kilograms now, this is not a weight loss program. All I'm saying is it took me a couple years to do it. I was always overweight my whole life, even when I was playing sport pretty actively. But uh, it ain't a diet. It's just less calories in, more calories out. Science, bitches. Not a lot of junk. And uh, the kind of the thing that I do... Some people say, oh, is it a 5-2 or a 4-3? Is it an Atkins? Is it a keto? Is it whatever? I just don't drink any alcohol or have any sweets four days a week as a rule. And then three days, generally on the weekend, I just do whatever I want. Drink as much as I want, eat as much chocolate as I want, whatever. So the moral of the story is I'm being better more times than I'm not being vigilant in. You know, it's gradual and it just uh, just keeps things going. And just something to think about while we're locked down in various parts of the world. Just stay busy and less calories in than out. And uh, I've maintained this year in and year out. It's a lifestyle now. It's uh, not a diet nor a fad. And I thought I'd share that and pass it on. And in fact, um, I got the most unusual for me notice on uh, social media a couple weeks ago. Uh, an old friend posted to me under a photo, how do you stay so skinny? How do I stay so skinny? I've never been, in 67 years, no one, asked, no one ever asked me that. It was like, I almost printed it out and framed it and put it over my desk. Um, it's just something I've never been asked, but uh, it took me a couple of years to, to get the weight off. Diligent, diligent, diligent. And now, um, you know, like eight, 10 years later, no variance, you know, at all. So that was like the best thing I could ever hear. And speaking of food, 
and especially sweets and things, one of the delightful things about having a beautiful cup of coffee or tea and some sweets is the bowl or cup that it's served in. It gives you such a wonderful, effervescent, incandescent feeling, like when you're at a five-star hotel or just in front of the fire at home. And as my wife and I have an upcoming anniversary, we kind of gifted each other some new crockery this week, which is one of the things you do when you're bored and sitting home and it's a lockdown and you order things online. And interestingly enough, it ties into today in history because it's Villeroy and Bosch. And Villeroy and Bosch was actually founded this week in 1748 in Lorraine, in the Holy Roland Empire, which is actually now part of Metlach, Germany. And uh, it was founded in that tiny little Lorraine village, or Lorraine, perhaps. I am not a master of French, um, although I am a student of Italian, as you know, where the iron maker Francois Bosch had set up a pottery company with his three sons in 1748. And in 1766, Bosch was licensed to build a ceramic kiln works nearby at Septonfranks in Luxembourg, where it operated a porcelain factory. And in 1785, just nine years later, Nicholas Villeroy became the sole owner of the factory at Wallerfangen. So that is how the Villeroy and Bosch family business started. Now, here we are hundreds of years later from this week when they founded, and somewhat serendipitously, that's the uh, crockery that uh, we chose. It'll, it's quite beautiful. It's not too overly posh or overly expensive, but you know, you're sitting at home and shopping online and something says 50% off plus an additional 10% off and free shipping if you order right now. And our anniversary was coming up and it just seemed to be, seemed to be nice. And uh, interestingly enough, some of the family members are still some of the major shareholders, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later. Well, stuff like that, that I just absolutely love. Now, that was this week in history. Today in history, on July 31st, in 1954, new heights were conquered as Pakistan's K2 mountain was conquered as two members of the Italian expedition, Achille Campagnoni and Lino Lacicciadelli, reached the summit. We're going to talk a, quite a bit about climbing various types of mountains, ephemeral and real, in this episode. Now, in 1715... A fleet of Spanish ships on this date carrying gold, silver, and jewelry sunk during a hurricane off the East Florida coast. 2,500 crew members, more than 1,000 of them died. And here we are, centuries later, and major storms are brewing. Tropical hurricanes, cyclones, whatever, off the coast of Florida. But there's no galleons to sink these days. Moving back in time to 1703, Daniel Defoe was placed in a pillory on this date for the crime of seditious libel after publishing a politically satirical pamphlet, but he was pelted with flowers. I'd like to think that's what would happen with me in my podcast if I was placed in a pillory. People would just pelt me with flowers, hopefully not ones I'm allergic to. Very difficult to sneeze and, you know, cover your nose when you're in a pillory. In 1932, the Cleveland Indians christened their new home 
Municipal Stadium on this date before more than 76,000 fans and lost the opener 1-0 to the Philadelphia A's. Now, little did they know that here in 2020, they'd be just about to lose their name of the Cleveland Indians. 1942, 1943, and 1944 on this date was a very bad day for Jews because in 1942, German SS gassed 1,000 Jews in Minsk, Belarusia. The same day in 1943, transport number 58 departed with French Jews to Nazi Germany. On the same day in 1944, the last deportation train out of Mechelen departed to Auschwitz. And also on this date, transport number 77 departed with French Jews to Nazi Germany. July 31st, not a good day for Jews in Germany or just about anywhere during the 40s. Or as you know, um, not just the 1940s, basically for the past 5,000 years. And, and just on that note, an interesting article that was in the Australian about the victimization and stuff like that. We know there's a lots of riots going on around the world Right now, when people say, you know, they're victims, you know, slavery and this, that, stuff like that. I'm not going to get into all that. You, 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 you can't avoid the news. But listen, there's been anti-Semitism for 5,000 years. Every country on the world, in the world has just about tried to obliterate the Jews for 5,000 years. Most of the Mideast, their raison d'etre is to obliterate Israel. And, you know, are we victims on that? Do we march? Jewish lives matter. Do we boycott anything German? Do we boycott anything Mideast? No, we don't do the boycotts. We don't do the victimhood thing. We just get on with it and just, you know, go forward. You know, we don't, you know, we have a symbiotic relationship with the Germans. They kill us and we buy their cars. Um, so, you know, we don't boycott Porsches and Audis and Mercedes and Bosch and th things like that. But interestingly, just recently, uh, a leading Jewish lawyer, one of the um, 50 most influential Jews in the in the world, Mark Liebler, was honored here in Australia. And Cape York indigenous leader Noel Pearson has spoken of his great love for his mentor, Mark Liebler, the Jewish lawyer from Melbourne, whose example had taught him that indigenous Australians can resist victimhood even in the face of persistent racism and victimization. I think that really says it all. You can choose to be a victim. You can choose to go forward. Uh, and that was reported by Paige Taylor in The Australian. Let's make it a little happier. Let's go forward to 1959. Some of you might remember this. Cliff Richard and the Shadows have their first British number one single with Living Doll. It was the bi biggest British single of 1959. In a 1966, something I well remember, I was 13, Alabamans, those are people from Alabama, Alabamans, burned beetle products due to John Lennon's anti-Jesus remark. And in 1988, the last Playboy club in the world closed in Lansing, Michigan. The fact that they even had a Playboy club in Lansing, Michigan, which is let's just leave it at that, um, shows the decline of Playboy Magazine. And Playboy Magazine, yes, we bought it for the articles. The pictures were simply a bonus. 
Loved it so much we bought the company. Where is Playboy now? Now, we did say earlier we'd be talking about climbing and Mount Everest. And George Mallory, um, related to that anniversary of the conquering of, of K2. And life itself is like climbing Mount Everest. Every day, we have a new mountain to climb. And when we get to the top of that mountain, if we ever do, we usually can see another mountain that we hadn't seen before that's much higher. So I do think mountain climbing is a real metaphor for life. And a story that absolutely amazes me, and just this week, a film that looked like it had died several years ago was reannounced, and that's Michael Sheen, who you probably know very well from Frost, Nixon, Masters of Sex, dozens and dozens of films, is um, slated to star again as explorer George Mallory, who allegedly first conquered Mount Everest when he attempted it in 1924. He disappeared on the 6th of June into the mist as he was making his final ascent and was never seen again until the 1st of May, 1999, when his body completely fossil or mummified was found in the snow by accident. And one of the things that absolutely amazes me is a lot of people say, oh no, it was definitely Sir Edmund Hillary who climbed and ascended Mount Everest first. And you grow up and you think, yeah, Edmund Hillary, he's the one that uh, conquered Everest. Everyone knows Hillary. But George Mallory some very, very unique things about that story. There's been five different films that have been attempted, and they have all crashed just like a climbing attempt. Financing, uh, legal rights, actors leaving one picture to go to another picture. And Michael Sheen actually announced that he was going to star about the ill-fated Mountaineers trip in an article by Ben Childs. And here we are five years later, and the project has just resurfaced. Sheen had told Screen Daily and just re, re-shared the story. I've been fascinated by George Mallory for as long as I can remember. That led directly to my own Himalayan climbs in the 90s, including leading an expedition to the 27,766-foot Makula in 1992. It was this direct experience that gave me a deep-seated respect for the bold imagination and war-hardened bravery that Mallory and his companions displayed in their quest for the summit of Everest long before the age of Gore-Tex and titanium. Now, actually, back in 1924, Mallory and his climbing partner, Andrew Irvine, never made it back down. They were about, as I shared, 800 vertical feet from the summit. And people say, oh, I don't think he ever made it. But there's been four other films that have tried to tackle this, a separate film with Tom Hardy attached to play the Mountaineer and Born Identity director Doug Lyman was in line to direct that Doug. Then that had development difficulties. By the way, that project was originally titled Everest, and you probably would have read a lot about it a few years ago, but it was renamed The Summit due to clashing with another upcoming film about Mountaineers, which was released, starring Josh Brolin, Jake Gyllenhaal, Jason Clark and John Hawks in the story of the New Zealand-led climbing disaster, which is an amazing film, astonishing film. But here's my thing. 
two things, two items of circumstantial evidence from Mallory's body after it was discovered suggest that he had reached the summit. Mallory's daughter said that Mallory carried a photograph of his wife on his person with the intention of leaving it on the summit. That photograph was not found on Mallory's body. And given the excellent preservation of his body, literally mummified in the snow, its garments and all the other items, including documents in his wallet, this points to the strong possibility that he had reached the summit and deposited the photo there. On the other hand, his partner Wang, who was known to have taken Mallory's ice axe, could also have taken the photograph for identification purposes. And no one who has subsequently reached the summit has reported seeing any evidence of the photograph or any other trace of their presence there. Also, Mallory's unbroken snow goggles were found in his pocket, suggesting that he and Irvine had made a push for the summit earlier and were now descending after sunset. On his attempt a few days earlier, Norton had suffered serious snow blindness because he didn't wear his goggles, so Mallory would be highly unlikely to have dispensed with them in daylight, and given their known departure time and movements, had they not attempted the summit pyramid, they would have been taken out by nightfall is highly unlikely. An alternative scenario is that Mallory may have carried an extra pair, and the pair he was wearing was torn off in the fall. That ultimately killed him. Now, I am so fascinated by this, and this new film that's been restarted, restarted, restarted with Michael Sheen. I hope it's a go. Everything that can go wrong with a movie has gone wrong with this. And it's astonishing that in all these years, not one of them other than a few small documentaries and things has uh, made it to the screen. So watch this space. There was quite a bit of fake news a couple of years ago that um, there was a big movement from friends and relatives and descendants of Sir Edmund, Sir Edmund Hillary to block all these films from happening because it would tarnish his image as the guy that conquered Mount Everest. And that's completely untrue. In late interviews with Sir Edmund Hillary, um, he would have been very happy to have found that Mallory ascended it. Uh, Hillary is the first one to make it up and make it back. That will never be tarnished. But... Um, it was just a groundswell of fake news and Hillary and none of his family or anything like that. If Mallory made it up first, great. He was, it was all the happier. And that's, um, that kind of brings us to the, the fake news of this week, which is an absolute, unbelievable, um, virtually unfathomable absence of any reporting of all the rioting that's been going on in the U.S., in Portland, and Chicago, and Baltimore, and New York, but especially Portland, which has had several months in a, in a row, every night of massive riotings in which there's been deaths, deaths of both rioters, there's been police injuries, um, journalists injured, and over $100 million in, in destruction. And the, the narrative is that when the president sent in federal agents, the last couple of weeks to protect federal buildings that were being burned with federal workers inside them, that it was like shock troops. It was like Bruce Willis in the siege. It was like, you know, sending in, you know, the Gestapo and, you know, militia and stuff like that. Far from it. 
the president has the power to protect federal buildings and federal workers and sent in a couple hundred federal agents to do so. So when you see in the news that, oh, these were all unmarked, you know, like Gestapo vehicles, well, federal agents don't have marked cars that says, hi, I'm a federal agent, just like the Secret Service or FBI or anything else. They use unmarked cars. And the spin on this has just been ridiculous. Whether you whether you like him or not, you you choose to either live in a city where there's chaos or you live in a city where you can walk down the street with your wife, your husband, your mom, your dad, your daughter safely. Choose chaos or choose law and order. It's, that's not about picking a side of who you like or right or wrong. That is chaos or order. In Chicago, there was 22 murders in one day last week, including a three-year-old girl who was shot in the face. That's, that, that's a three-year-old who will never live to do all the things that kids should grow up to do and then adults and and then you know it's it's just unfathomable so when you're looking at your news and you're getting opinions about what's going on in the u.s right now um make sure you just delve and just do a little a little research and the fact that not any major news station has recorded on this tells you what side that they like are they on the side of law and order and civilization or chaos, because that's what that's coming to. So as we continue to climb mountains, climb mountains of fake news, climb mountains of good news, bad news, and, and things we like, one of the things that is really concerning me that very few people know about, that almost no news outlet has shared with us, is the invasion of the monkeys. Yes, the invasion of the monkeys. Who knew? Now, those of you that are traveling to Thailand, those of you that can holiday in Plung, or those of you that are already in Thailand, need to know this. As reported in Asia News World via Fox in Lopburi, Thailand, there were some customers waiting outside a bank in Lopburi. They'd left their jewelry at home and kept their other treasures out of sight. But... Danger lurked anyway. In broad daylight, they watched a thief steal an iced tea and a vandal brazenly attack a motorcycle seat. One woman quit her place in the line when a stalker, furry stalker, crept up and threatened to bite her. With a sigh, a police officer brandished a slingshot and the monkeys scattered. Less than a minute later, they were back. Lepuri a one-time capital of the Siamese kingdom and a repository of ancient architecture is now a city under siege. Crab-eating macaques, a southeastern Asian species with piercing eyes and curious natures, have spilled out of the temples where they were once revered and taken over the heart of the town. A population of almost 10,000 has been concentrated in a few city blocks, decimating the local economy. They've moved into abandoned buildings, trashed display cases, rattled the bars and stalled to keep them out. And unless security guards are vigilant, they rip antennas and windshield wipers off of cars. Dangling earrings, sunglasses, and plastic bags that look like food are in them are irresistible to the monkeys. And they're smart, 
very, very smart. At a hardware store across the street from a ruins of a 13th century Hindu temple, oversized stuffed animals in the shapes of crocodiles and tigers peer out at the street where the monkey traffic outpaces that of pedestrians. These plush toys, like scarecrows, were meant to scare away the monkeys, and it worked for a couple of weeks. But then the macaques soon figured out they weren't real, and they came back. It has never been this bad, Ms. Yupa, a store owner, said, as a young male macaque wandered into her store, intent on chewing the loops of rubber hose hanging from the ceiling. We're not against the monkeys, but it is most difficult when people are afraid of being bitten when they come into our store. And what I find to be absolutely one of the coolest things is that capturing the monkeys for an operation from the police that took 300 officers was a major undertaking, said Mr. Narong Nangaporn, the wildlife official for the area. On the first day of the June campaign, the monkey catchers wore camouflage-printed uniforms and lured the animals into cages with food. But by the second day, the monkeys knew to avoid them. They had to change their clothing every day and start wearing shorts and floral shirts, pretending they were holiday makers. The monkeys are very smart, Mr. Narangporn said. They remember. I cannot unsee this article on Fox News of the 10,000 monkeys chasing people down the street. This is like Planet of the Apes times 50. Now, speaking of movies like Planet of the Apes and things like that, let's segue right into a bit of a movie section. We're going to talk about movies old, well, really not so old, and movies new. I'm going back to 2015 to the movie Joy. Now, Joy is actually based on a true story of Joy Mangano. And Jennifer Lawrence is the star, and it's a pretty wild story. It uh, crosses four generations, and it centers on the girl who becomes the woman who founds a business dynasty and becomes a matriarch in her own right. Betrayal, treacherousy, loss of innocence, and the scars of love pave the road in this intense, emotional, and human comedy. Now, Jennifer Lawrence is backed also by Oscar winner Robert De Niro, Bradley Cooper, Edgar Ramirez, Isabella Rossellini, where'd she go? Diane Ladd, where's she been? Virginia Madsen, where the hell has she been? Elizabeth Room and Dasha Polanco. And a lot like David O. Russell's previous films, it's a, a genre story about family, loyalty, and love, like I Heart Huckabees, which was a fantastic film. I think David O. Russell catches a lot of flack for what they call incomplete films, starting with Adaptation back in 2002, um, I Heart Huckabee's previously mentioned 2004, Three Kings, the best thing George Clooney's ever done, The Fighter, one of the best things Mark Wahlberg and Christian Bale have ever done, Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle. Every film David O. Russell does is magnificent, but it always gets mixed reviews, they never do really huge box office. And critics really like to take apart either the ending or something. And it says, oh, what? that isn't true to the film. I think Russell catches narrative and family as good or better than anyone. Better than even Martin Scorsese. Scorsese captures the mob. He captures relationships. But David O. Russell captures the intricacies of family. 
and uh, it's a very life-affirming story. If you have seen it before, see it again. If you haven't seen it, it's literally the story of a, a girl down on her luck who hits it big in a home shopping network with an invention that she's created on her home. And with backstabbing and subterfuge and revenge and everything that can go wrong, the beautiful music you heard in the background was by West Dylan Thordson, and he composed the theme of the movie. So bringing us up to the present, I'd like to tell you about a great little discovery called Luce, L-U-C-E. Luce is directed by Julius Ona, who's a Nigerian-American director, his first major feature, and it stars an amazing, amazing new actor named Kelvin Harrison Jr. Watch this guy. And Luce, spelled L-U-C-E, is about an all-star high school athlete who's from war-torn Eritrea. And he's absolutely adored by all the other students and his parents. He's been adopted, and his mom, Amy Edgar, played by Naomi Watts, and dad, played by Tim Roth, are the typical kind of Midwestern, semi-successful white family that's adopted a war-torn child. Now, it kind of reminded me a little bit of The Blind Side, where Sandra Bullock in her Academy Award-winning role, which I can't believe was made in 2009. It's already been 11 years. I can't believe that. In fact, that was nominated for Best Picture but did not win. Um, taking in the um, big, black, football-playing, poor kid, and, you know, showing him how to have a great life and stuff like that. That really seemed really so token and so predictable. But at the time was so fantastic and so inspiring. It's a great film, but looking back on the blind side, it's um, it's a bit cheesy, and I think that Bullock's performance just doesn't hold up as well as some other things she's done. She's a fantastic actress, whereas this is very of the moment. This is very the zeitgeist of right now with, with race and um, Instagram and aspirational... Uh, social media dramas and uh, people being mistaken for for who they are not and for who they are believed to be. Anyway, in short, he's the high school athlete, Luce Edgar, and he's got a lot of animosity towards his history teacher, who is Harriet Wilson, played by the ever-popular Octavia Spencer. And the teacher got his best friend, Deshaun, kicked off the running team after finding marijuana in his locker. There's a very, very important scene in the opening of the film where you see his locker, and it's very important to make sure that you watch closely in that because that dictates what happens during the rest of the film. And the film, which uh, is a very economical 109 minutes, really is about his being falsely accused of this and that and uh, several other things that would be huge spoilers. But is he really the adoring, wondrous student that's been adopted and has overcome his past to be a great, you know, great new American of which he's proud of? Or is he really hiding something and hating America and hating the duplicity in himself? It's up for you to decide. It's a very powerful film. Nobody has seen it. Really, nobody is going to see it unless you go see it. Uh, the poster is absolutely horrible. This is the truth wears many faces, you know. What's that? You see this poster and you go, there's no way I'm going to see this film. 
But you think, ah, oh, Tim Roth. He'll play the tough guy, but actually he plays the meek guy in this room. And Naomi Watts plays the very tough, hardened, decisive mother. Now, I've always liked Naomi Watts in tough dramas, in 21 Grams. Oh, my God, she was astonishing. And in Mulholland Drive, astonishing. When she tries to be funny and nice, it just doesn't work. One, I don't think she has a sense of humor, so she can't play funny. And nice, um, she just comes across as too vapid. But when she comes across with depth... She, she's just unforgettable. And this film has stuck with me all week. And I highly implore that you see it. It was uh, released by Neon if you're searching for it. So it might be on your cable network in the U.S. and U.K. It is on Foxtel here. It has world premiere last year at Sundance. Not going to be having a Sundance this year, I don't think, with the Wu flu. And was theatrically released just last August. But... Um, it just hasn't been finding the big audience and press that it deserves. So please see this. You will not be disappointed. Now, it's awesome we have the freedoms to see these amazing films and do pretty much what we want because right across the water in Hong Kong, there aren't any freedoms anymore. And I do want to touch on this, and I've talked about it the last couple of weeks and haven't gotten a chance to get to it because I'm bitching and moaning about you know, Victoria being locked down. I haven't been bitching and moaning about having to wear <clears throat> the mask so much, although I think I'm going to be getting a, a secondary or tertiary respiratory disease from wearing the mask rather than COVID. But um, there are no freedoms over in Hong Kong, which was a bastion of Asian democracy for decades and decades. When China's draconian new security laws for Hong Kong took effect on July 1st, my birthday, sadly, arrests began instantly. Is any of the news media reporting on it? Fuck no. They'd rather report on, you know, anything in the U.S. that is, is negative to the, the, the president or advances a socialist agenda. In Hong Kong, police in riot gear swarmed the Causeway Bay shopping district. They've been blasting pepper spray, tear gas, rubber bullets, and just blasting crowds of Hong Kong residents that are protesting the legislation. And in fact, they even brought out the water cannons to disperse marchers, and almost 400 people were arrested the first day, including a 15-year-old girl. Under China's new laws, anyone convicted of quote-unquote acts of secession, subversion of state power, terrorist activities, collusion with foreign or external forces, basically openly dissenting from anything China doesn't like, faces life in prison. And what it's done is, you know, warrantless searches, secret trials, seizure of assets. It's, it's forced a self-censorship on everyone in Hong Kong. Most activists have deleted their social media accounts. Writers have taken websites down. Um, Pro-democracy youth groups have disbanded. Uh, a lot of this reported by Jeff Jacoby, by the way, it's fantastic, who I've mentioned many times before. And even libraries are pulling books critical of China's communist government. Fortunately, the U.S., the U.K., and Australia, the three bastions of democracy, are negating extradition treaties so that people from Hong Kong can come to the U.K. and Australia, and with some difficulty, uh, to the U.S. and not worry about being extradited so they can leave take what money they can get out of the country and and be gone 
But this is one of the biggest destructions of human rights on the planet, and especially important. Yes, there's a hierarchy of human rights. I can't say I'm really worried about what's going on in the Sudan or the Sub-Sahara or anywhere like that compared to world economy and what's being offered on site to what Hong Kong can offer. Are people from Hong Kong better than people from the Sub-Sahara? No. Are they economically better off to offer something in return to a new country they come to? Yes. So if you have to have a choice, if you're going to take 10,000 people from one place or 10,000 from another, tough call. I would rather have the 10,000 that can speak our language and can also bring a business or start a business straight away and will not go on social services straight away. Doesn't mean they're better or worse people. It just means they're more adaptable to the economy when there's already such a strain on social services. Most people don't want to say that. They think, oh, that's racist. That's not racist. That's clarity. And that's decision-making for the greater good of all. It's scaring me to death what's going on in Hong Kong. And it should scare you too. China is not our friend. One more reason to drop the big one there. But while we're on Jeff Jacoby, who is one of my favorite writers and writes for the Boston Globe, it's um, his recent article last week talking about fear of speech is replacing freedom of speech is that there's been a new national poll by the Cato Institute that found that self-censorship has been extremely widespread in American society, with 62% of adults saying that given the current political climate, they are afraid to honestly express their views. And these fears cross partisan lines. Majorities of Democrats, 52%, Independents, 59%, and Republicans, 77%, all agree they have political opinions they are afraid to share. They fear reprisals. They fear that their jobs or their way of life will be damaged if they share their opinion. That's roughly one-third of American adults, 32%, fear they could be either fired or otherwise penalized at work if their political beliefs became known. That is so bordering on the ridiculousness that it's, it's craziness. College campuses are the worst, where there's ever-widening no-go zones of viewpoints and arguments that cannot be safely expressed. And college, university, used to be the go-to zone for viewpoints and arguments. The dean of a nursing school at University of Massachusetts at Lowell lost her job after writing in an email that, quote-unquote, everyone's life matters a few weeks ago. An art curator was accused of being racist and forced to quit for saying that his museum would, quote, unquote, continue to collect white artists. And the director of communications for Boeing Airlines apologized and resigned after an employee complained that 33 years ago, 33 years ago, he was opposed to women serving in combat. Americans' rights to speech is shielded by the Constitution to a degree unmatched anywhere else. But our first and our American First Amendment guarantees will prove impotent if the habit, the habit 
of free speech is lost. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! Yes, and it is my favorite part of the show. No matter where this falls, sometimes early, sometimes late in the show, the what is the podcaster wearing always makes me have a look at fashion and art, which I love so much. It makes me feel grateful to live in a country that appreciates creation and independence. And places and their atmospheres do often inspire ideas. You just have to know how to gather them. Straight after the Second World War, at just 24, young Giuseppe Marenzi was able to seize hold of one of them, inspired by the geography and climate of Lake Maggiore, Lesa, in the Erno Valley in Italy. Cold, rainy winters and hot summers, refreshed by quenching storms, gave this land luxuriant vegetation and required adequate clothing to protect against the water and resistant winds. Young Marenzi was employed by a raincoat company and thanks to his military experience during the war, found ingenious solutions to improve the waterproof nature of the fabrics by using castor oil, a rare asset that he somehow managed to obtain. Can you see where I'm going here? And so he bought a notable increase in production to the company, foreseeing that there was a room to provide more functional and technically developed coats. Giuseppe Marenzi decided to take a big step, form a company all of his own. It was in Lesa, in the Erno Valley, that the idea came to life and flourished. Giuseppe Marenzi and his wife Alessandra Diana took over an old plant near the stream, which as a natural source of energy had been powering the mill since the early 1900s. There they launched their factory, calling the company Herno, an homage to the eponymous river, as the venture was inspired by water and the surrounding environment, still a steadfast point of reference in the Herno world today. I love my Herno black raincoat, which is actually an overcoat. It's very light, but very warm and very waterproof, which is very important in Melbourne. Wearing that today in my black Johnny Cash, Nine Inch Nails, black hole kind of feeling. With a black diesel t-shirt underneath it, we've spoken about diesel in the past, and a bright purple acne, acne like, you know, bad skin complexion. I really don't like the name of the company, but it's an amazing company, a Swedish fabric company, ACNE. Acne Studios was actually founded in 1996 in Stockholm, Sweden, as part of the creative collective ACNE that focused on graphic design, film production, and advertising. It doesn't translate well to the English because of, you know, the skin condition acne, but there's the Swedes for you. In 1997, co-founder Johnny Johansson created 100 pairs of raw denim jeans with red stitching and gave them away to friends and family. And it is a very hot brand in gorgeous colors and fabrics. And speaking of Sweden, it's just serendipitous that I'm double Swede today. I've got some Swedish walking shoes on called On, O-N, which are completely waterproof also and some of the most comfortable 
I guess they're a cross between a sneaker and like a uh, hiking shoe that I've ever worn. And the picture is in the snow. The picture is in the snowshoes. The picture is in the show notes. And uh, none of this is um, very pricey. Just quite amazing. You knew that word was coming. These are investment pieces that, while they don't cost a big investment, will last pretty much the rest of your life if you take care of them. And that's what I love about quintessentially astonishing fabric and construction. The amazing Herno coat came from the Herno store in Soho in New York a couple of years ago. Although they are available at Harold's here in Melbourne, and the on sneaker shoe came from Sports Conscious in Brighton, where Andy has been one of the actually old school, you know, independent sports retailers for I think probably 40 or 50 years on Church Street in Brighton. There's really no better service than you get at Sports Conscious. And the groovy purple acne beanie came from Incum out at Chadston, where we can't visit anymore for a while because of the Wu flu. Great service out there too. I think they're affiliated with the Rag and Bone group for those of you that are interested at all. And speaking of Herno again, and back to Harold's, Harold's has an amazing newsletter, and their newsletter this week had some things that really, really hit the mark. And one of them is about a guy named Mickey Mancuso and a project he launched in 2014 called Mickey's Art, which is the result of his own passion for the art world. He observed a gap in the market between the artist and the consumer, whereby countless talented artists and their work flew under the radar. So he founded Mickey's Art in an effort to bridge the gap and create a platform to connect artists with potential buyers. As he said in his interview, people can go missing in the art world if no one is showcasing them. He's met artists that are so talented, but they have no idea how to log on to Instagram. And they might even be like a 26-year-old, therefore unearthing this talent is paramount. His current art portfolio consists of 16 artists, including Dina Broadhurst, Steve Clark, Maurice Coletta, Stanislas Pietrzykacek, as well as international creative heavyweights such as Banksy, Jeff Koons, Keith Haring, and Yoyoi Kusama. Now, I think that's absolutely fantastic because, like he said, unless you're in the digital world, unless you're an Instagram king or queen or you get your work known digitally, sometimes people just don't know who you are anymore. And there's a fantastic quote from Mancuso about the time travel that goes on in the art world and with fashion. And I, I so buy into this. Sometimes I look back at my wardrobe and think, how did I ever wear that? Or I look around and think, I can't believe I've got that painting or picture there. But it shows a different headspace and where you were at that time. And the art world's very important. I'm going to be doing an interview here shortly that will air in the next few weeks with a fantastic artist that I prefaced in previous shows named Richard Payne. And you'll hear more about him then. So thanks to Harold's on Collins Street in Melbourne for this fantastic publication. And once again, complete transparency from our sponsors. I have none. There are no sponsors. I do all of these shout-outs and things just on my own volition. They're thank you for great service and just fantastic products from great people. And what I'm thinking in the back of my head is maybe one day someone will go, Jesus, he's really amazingly transparent 
and um, very emotive and genuine and honest about that. Maybe I should pay him zillions of dollars to advertise my product on his show so he can keep his show on forever and truly retire. Well, we shall see. We're always taking your calls. And by the way, it was noted to me by Dennis to the Stars, Peter Fraser, that um, sometimes people can't find the things that I talk about, a particular movie, a particular song, whatever, where these are all in the show notes. Now, if you subscribe through Apple Podcasts or iHeart or Spotify or anything like that, that doesn't take you to the show notes. The actual website is blueberry.net. So it's the way it is dot blueberry b l u b r r y dot net. The way it is dot blueberry b l u b r r y dot net. And that's a WordPress site publication. So you see all the photos of the things I'm talking about, all the uh, groovy products. The, um, the actors or directors or people that I call out, um, clothes and um, obscure things and the movies and their addresses and uh, hashtags and websites and ads if you want to follow these people on Instagram and, and Facebook and all that. So there's just a wealth of information there. And if you're missing that, you know, get, get, get over there. Get over there now. Absolutely. And while I am doing shout outs, that will appear in this week. Once again, thanks to, to Heralds for their amazing stuff. Thanks to the amazing Jane and Mary at Shine Mirrors in Parramatta, New South Wales. And last week's show notes, if you looked, I'd remodeled my office with some beautiful snow leopard wallpaper and uh, got a couple of mirrors to put up, which aren't up yet, but will be. And uh, the people at Shine Mirrors and Parramatta, who ship internationally, are fantastic. And as far as what's your podcaster drinking, what I drank last night, last night I drank water, okay, soda water. But tonight, I'm opening a bottle, a beautiful bottle of 2018 Petaluma Chardonnay. It's a South Australian Chardonnay, and it is one of my absolute favorites. Yeah, 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 he drinks Chardonnay from time to time. It's big, it's bold, and... Um, just having a light, homemade pumpkin soup with ginger, cumin, oregano, thyme, and other secret spices that my wife and I made yesterday. And it's just been sitting there metastasizing, ready to be eaten tonight with a fine wine. Well, in closing, in celebration, the Emmy Award nominations came out yesterday and there are so many fantastic snubs, but there are so many fantastic nominations this year. And I'm really over a lot of Hollywood and the industry because they're, you know, such absolute dillwads, by and large, celebrities. But you got to love their shows. We play the man and the woman, not the ball. And especially all the nominations for Succession and Larry David. And uh, I'm going to go into that next week because there's there is a lot of goodness and a couple of secret, sacred surprises there that we'll talk about. And uh, for those of you in the UK, we love Boris Johnson's half-price meal plan to get restaurants moving and to get people out of the house. There is a lot of questions about whether Hungry Jack's, Burger King, McDonald's, and places like that should be on the half-price meal plan. We've kind of run out of time today, so we'll talk about that next week. And as I go to air with this, Everyone 
in Victoria is now forced to wear a mask, not just us here in Melbourne. So I'll be talking about that next week and seeing how that all plays out. It's a weird fucking world. That's all I can say. And uh, just try and find the goodness in something every day. Every day, no matter what politicians and people come up with or people on social media that is so retarded that you think there is no hope for the world. And basically, there really isn't. There's always one little thing you can think, wow, that's fantastic. I can look at the good in that and have an absolute brilliant day. Because if you're in a concentration camp or working at Amazon, similar, or, you know, in a, you know, work jail, you know, camp in North Korea or living in Lansing, Michigan, you would have to find the good in things. So wherever you are, and this is very important, just find the goodness. It's nice to be important, but you know by now, and sometimes I find this hard, it's far more important to be nice. Arriva derce. We'll see you next week. Don't forget to subscribe. Please tell others to subscribe. I really appreciate it. The only way the show grows is through you. And every day I wake up grateful that you're listening to me because that's the only hope the earth has is if you just keep listening to me. Thanks. Grazie mie, sei un dio tra gli uomini.